This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your love and your grace and your peace. Lord, I pray that you would give ears, us ears to hear this morning what you may have to say to us through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Although we are now one week from Easter Sunday, our gospel reading this morning begins on the evening of that first Easter day. The, the disciples have gathered behind locked doors. They're afraid. Perhaps they're also feeling guilty at having deserted Jesus at the end. Into the midst of this beleaguered group, Jesus comes and stands among them. The suggestion is that Jesus somehow simply appeared through locked doors. Jesus' resurrection body, though recognizably the same Jesus who had been crucified, is also transformed. There's a continuity and a, a difference that comes about in resurrection. Standing in their midst, Jesus says, peace, or literally shalom, a word that means well-being in the fullest possible sense of that word. Shalom is not the mere absence of strife or stress. Rather, it describes that state of contentment when we know that God is in charge and we're mindful of his presence. It was a word those frightened, dispirited, anxious disciples desperately needed to hear that night because they were feeling anything but peace. What a gift Jesus gives to his disciples. He doesn't chastise them for their failings. He doesn't even call them at this point to repent of their unbelief. Instead, he presents himself to them with peace and love and forgiveness, sheer grace and mercy. And this surely is what we all need. One of the most wonderful things about the shalom that Jesus brings is that it's based on truth. It's based on reality. It's real because of the resurrection. After all the calamity of that first Easter weekend, the trial and crucifixion, the death and burial of Jesus, the greatest battle ever fought between good and evil, between light and darkness. After a battle that seemed to have ended in defeat, on that first Easter Sunday, the disciples meet the living, breathing, victorious Christ, alive from the dead. Death had been defeated. Yes, peace indeed. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, then this sets the context for everything else we read in the scriptures. And actually, it sets the context for everything else in life. The resurrection is quite literally the most important event in history. It changes everything. Now, the other side of that is also true, that if that's not the case, if it's not true, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then we are to be pitied more than any, because our hope is in vain and our peace is a sham, 
and we're deluding ourselves with mere fables and fantasies. But it is true. And Jesus shows the disciples the evidence of his hands and his side. And at last they rejoice. They can see for themselves that this is the same Jesus who had been nailed to a cross, now standing before them, showing him his wounds. They'd heard from the women, no doubt, of the empty tomb, and now Jesus was standing in front of them. And this scene is reassuring intellectually as Christ's wounds offer evidence of his resurrection. And it is also a source of great comfort that Jesus, in his resurrected body, should still have those marks of his suffering is so very powerful. The wounds remind us of what Jesus was willing to undergo and endure to be our savior for our sake. It's also a reminder that when we suffer, the one to whom we cry out for help knows all about suffering. Jesus is our wounded healer. And as his followers, we likewise are called to be wounded healers for others. After Jesus shows the disciples his hands and his side, he says again, peace be with you. But this second time he goes on to say, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Now, I should imagine probably everybody here is familiar with that most famous verse, maybe in the whole Bible, in John's Gospel, John 3.16. If you know it, say it with me. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in him may not perish, but have everlasting life. And here, on this occasion, Jesus says, in the same way, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Or we could put it another way, for God so loves the world that he sends you and me, so that everyone who believes in the one who has sent us, Jesus, may not perish, but may have everlasting life. The way people most often encounter God is through other people through other Christians. And I suspect that this most often happens when we're willing to be vulnerable enough, authentic enough, to let people see that we are but wounded healers who follow Jesus, the wounded healer par excellence. As we saw earlier in the children's talk, most of us here have scars some visible like the one on my finger but other scars that you and i bear are not so visible like the scars on our hearts scars of grief or betrayal shame failure sorrow difficult memories now for me most of the time my heart scars don't bother me too much but every now and again, they, they do. They still hurt. And often when I least expect it, sometimes I get quite taken aback. I might be walking through the grocery store late at night, and suddenly all kinds of memories come back of being there another time and alone, and, and things are a, a difficult time in my life. These scars are real. 
But it is these wounds that each of us bear, soothed by God's love, cleansed by his grace, and healed by his resurrection power that shape who we are and who we've become and how God can use us to go as those who are sent to do the work of our Heavenly Father. We see then uh, Jesus doing an extraordinary thing. In what is not pandemic-approved behavior, he breathes on the disciples and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, I imagine many of us are familiar with the person and work of the, of the Holy Spirit. We know about the fruits of the Spirit. We know about the gifts of the Spirit. But here, Jesus is talking about another work of the Spirit. He says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, the meaning's clear from the context of the disciples being sent out to proclaim the gospel. When we who are sent out go in the name of Jesus, proclaiming the good news of forgiveness of sins with the authority of the risen Lord, and like Jesus, we offer our wounded selves to the world, something happens. Some people accept the good news. They receive forgiveness. Their sins are forgiven them. Others reject the good news, and their sins remain unforgiven. Jesus, the light of the world, shines his light into the darkness. And his light and his truth shine for healing and forgiveness. But that same light also does something else. There's a kind of double illumination going on for the light also shines on the darkness. The light shows up the sin and the rebellion and the selfishness. Jesus had previously taught the disciples that when the Spirit comes... He will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. Without the love and grace of God bursting into the mess of our individual lives and our church family, by the power of the Holy Spirit, all our efforts at becoming more like Christ and at understanding and following his word will come to absolutely nothing. The truth of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit is essential to bring hope in the face of despair. And this ought to be nothing new to us, for this is at the heart of our mission. We are to proclaim God's word, which is both an invitation and a judgment. This is the work that Jesus was sending the disciples out to do. This is the work for which he was equipping them by the presence, his presence and power by the Holy Spirit. And this is also our work. We are sent out week by week to proclaim the risen Christ. And as we do so, we must remember that it's only the Holy Spirit who can convict of sin and bring about transformation. That's not something we do in our own efforts. Daily, we need to ask for his help as we put our trust in him in our vocations, in our homes, amongst all whom we meet, wherever we are. I know at least one person this morning who's watching from Aruba, so this is for you too. But that first Easter Sunday must have been an exhausting day 
for those first disciples. You know, I was tired, I'll admit it, after last Sunday, four services starting crack of dawn. Yeah, I was tired. But imagine the fatigue of those disciples, those men and women, and all that they had been through. And yet it ended with such hope as the risen Jesus spoke those words of peace and power, sending them out to proclaim God's forgiveness. But Thomas, our gospel text continues, was not with them when Jesus came that first Easter evening. The other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But Thomas could not or would not believe. Unless I see the marks of the nails in his hands and put my fingers in his side, I will not believe. Thomas is often referred to as doubting Thomas. I think there are many descriptors for Thomas. We could perhaps say he was grieving Thomas. After all, he loved Jesus. He was one of the 12 disciples. How could what the other disciples were saying really be true? I find myself having a lot of sympathy for Thomas. The very notion of resurrection is not exactly easy to believe. It wasn't somehow easier for people who lived in the first century than it is for us today. Of course it wasn't. So there it was on that first Easter evening, the bottom line for Thomas is summed up in his very clear statement. I will not believe. Doubting Thomas, grieving Thomas, is, well, also willful Thomas. And we too very often are presented with choices where we can enter into God's shalom or we can stand in a place of willful refusal. Unless that person apologizes to me, proves to me that they're truly sorry, and satisfies me that they've actually changed, I will not forgive, we might say. Alternatively, we can choose to say, Lord, help me. Lord, have mercy. Lord, help me to be willing to be willing to forgive. Lord, I will forgive. Thomas had a choice. He could have said, I believe, help my unbelief. He could have said, Lord, help me, I, I will believe, help me to believe. Or as he actually said, I will not believe. And that was his prerogative. He was free to refuse to believe. And that's still true this morning for every Thomas, Dick, and Harriet who likewise says, I will not believe. You too can be resolute in your refusal to believe. But you should know this. God will not be impressed by your unbelief. Thankfully, he's quite capable of surprising you, just as he did Thomas a week later. We don't know why Thomas hadn't <coughs> been there the week before. Maybe he got a good reason, or maybe he kind of slunk away. Maybe in his grief he was hiding, he was isolating himself. People often do that. I suspect he would have done much better if he'd lent on his brothers and sisters for support in those dark hours following the crucifixion. For surely that's what he needed at that moment was community around him. And it always grieves me when I see people choosing isolation rather than community. We've had that kind of forced upon us for almost a year or more than a year now. Um, 
But people do that, even when it's not a pandemic, when things haven't gone their way or things haven't turned out as they hoped or expected. But how sad it is when people cut themselves off from others. Well, what a blessing that Thomas wasn't abandoned. I often wonder, did Jesus come to them that night in part for Thomas's benefit? I rather think so. I, we're not told, but I, I kind of think so. And whatever the state of Thomas's heart and mind, doubt, grief, willfulness, Jesus reaches out specifically to him with love and compassion. Imagine what Thomas must have felt when he saw Jesus. And then Jesus offers him the exact same greeting as had been offered before. Peace be with you. And then he turns to Thomas, knowing exactly what had been on his mind, and says, here I am. Here are my nail marks. Here's the mark of my side. Touch, touch me. Reach out your hand. I should imagine at that point, Thomas probably wanted the ground to open up and swallow him. I think that's how I would have felt. And I don't think he put his hand uh, in his side or touched those uh, nail prints. Maybe he did, but what he actually did was the smartest and wisest thing anyone can do when they encounter the risen Jesus. He simply said, my Lord and my God. There comes a point when everyone must come off the fence when it comes to Jesus. It's not an intellectual exercise about what we believe or don't believe, and it's, it goes to the very core of who we are. Either we do believe and we do trust and we do obey, or we can choose to stick with our own willful, non-believing ways. Doubting Thomas, grieving Thomas, willful Thomas became believing Thomas. Now, of course, believing and trusting Jesus is not just a one-time deal. It's something that every follower of Christ has to do every day. And believing in Jesus is not some mantra. It's not about believing that a particular outcome or miracle will come about when we pray or when we believe. Rather, it's about believing and trusting and clinging on to Jesus, whatever the outcome. It's about being in relationship with the living Lord. And even then, it's still okay to say, Lord, I believe, but help, <clears throat> help my unbelief. This is not about the power of believing. It's about the power of the one in whom we believe and put our trust, however feebly we may do it. You know, when my children were little <clears throat> and we'd be crossing a stream, I would stand there on a firm rock in the middle and, and say, it's okay, trust me, give me your hand and I'll keep you safe across the stepping stones. But their safety, I mean, did it depend on <clears throat> how well they believe me or how strong their little hands were of course it didn't it depended rather on our relationship and them giving me their hand and once i had a hold of them i wasn't about to let go and yet there was a moment of choice a moment of trust no one is more trustworthy than jesus 
the one who bears the scars of his love, the one who gave his very life for you. Whatever doubts you may have, you need never doubt the presence, the power, and the love of the risen Jesus. I wonder how many times are we like Thomas? How many times do we say or live our lives in ways that say, I will not believe, I will not trust, I will not give up that which I'm holding on to for all I'm worth, I will not. And you're free to do that. Such words are clear, concise, and you can stay completely in control or live with that illusion. I will not, I will not, I will not. But know this, Jesus still says, peace to you. I love you. I died for you. I'm here. It's okay. Reach out your hand. Trust me. And you have a choice. You can persist in your, I will not believe, I will not trust, I will not surrender, or you can fall to your knees and grasp hold of his outstretched hand. And with Thomas, you too can say, my Lord and my God. What will you say?